The final season of Power Book 2, Ghost, begins. And for Tariq St. Patrick, it's the moment of truth. In the wake of being betrayed, pushed out of the drug game, and almost killed, Tariq is out for revenge. Will he prove to be like his father and do whatever is to be done to protect his family and his future? Or is he his own man? Power Book 2, Ghost, the final season. Watch now only on Stars and the Stars app. In the pressure cooker of the NBA playoffs, there's no room to fake it. Every pass, shot, and dribble is immediately consequential. The playoffs are the time for the real. Real stakes, real emotions, real sweat, blood, and tears. Real legacies. Which teams will rise from the chaos? Which teams will conquer? Which team is going to make this year their year? You already know when and where to find these moments of unscripted, pure entertainment. The NBA Finals continue. Tune in on ABC. State Farm Insurance knows that understanding and investing in our cultural identity is paramount in protecting our future. We know what it's like to go from nothing to something, to wish that we had better financial literacy when we were younger. Luckily, State Farm is here to help. With funding programs like Project Ready, which is committed to education achievement and has already awarded over $11 million in scholarship offers to black and brown youth since 2021. State Farm believes that being better neighbors creates better communities. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, now streaming only on Hulu. You know a spot, but not just a spot, the spot. Actually, with the 2023 Nissan Frontier, you know a bunch of them. But the key to these great spots, being able to reach them in the first place. Your spot is out there. Find your Frontier in the 2023 Nissan Frontier with standard 310 horsepower, advanced tech, and 281 pound-feet of torque. Happy Wednesday. What's going on? I'm Zuri. This is Hot Happy Mess. And let's get into it. Uh, quick life update. The holidays are slowly creeping up. They are upon us. I'm excited. The house is generally clean and in a state of cohesion. So that's a plus. <laughs> I was about to do the absolute most and try to finally get my dining room table together um, for home entertaining and like really making things perfect on the main level. But then I was like, Z, you're going home for the holidays, bro. Like, why? (laughs) And then I said, you know what? You're right. Because yes, I have full blown conversations with myself. So I am behaving. I am not going to buy a new dining table. I am going to save that money and be good. Because I told myself, I'm I'm reining in the spending as we inch towards Q4. Christmas gifts are my love. <laughs> I'm sending y'all love. Okay, so everybody in Toledo, when I touch down, yes, I still need you to come pick me up from the airport. No, I will not be bearing gifts. I say that now, but I love giving gifts. It's one of my love languages. So everybody's probably getting it something. Uh, but something small, okay? A budget is a budget. Um, I hope you're enjoying your weeks as we lead into the holiday season. I'm curious to know, how are you celebrating? What's your favorite holiday cocktail? I've been sipping on Manhattans lately. It's a vibe, very kind of a stronger drink, but delicious um, and definitely tastes festive and wintry. Um, I want to experiment with some, some autumn and winter cocktails too. So if you have any recommendations, slide in my DMs, let me know. I want to try them. But I am definitely loving all the denim, all the plaid, all the basic bitch attire. Sign me up. (laughs) I love fall is like, you know how they have like mating season? I don't know where I'm going with this analogy, but just stick with me. (laughs) And it's like you start hearing like the cuckoos or whatever. You're like, oh, it's go time. Like this is my season. Autumn, 
as soon as like one leaf changes from green to orangish or brown, which in LA really takes a long time, I'm like, say less, I'm going to Target, I'm picking up all the pumpkin spice candles, all the pumpkin spice flavored lattes, all the pumpkin spice coffee from Starbucks on my way back to the house. Basic bitch energy all season long, and I love it. And I don't even like pumpkin. <laughs> like, I don't eat pumpkin. Pumpkin pie is not something I can wrap my mind around. Sweet potato pie, absolutely. But anyways, <sighs> fall, I love it. Let me ask you something. Speaking of fall, have you ever fallen in love? See what I did there? Without talking about finances? Ooh, it's a touchy subject, I know, but I don't recommend you fall in love and not talk about finances. We all have heard, you know, people say that money can be one of the biggest deal breakers in relationships. It can be the cause of a lot of fighting in relationships. And I really, truly believe it is so important to be on the same page and compatible with your partner when it comes to building a financial life together, because it's serious stuff. And if you're not compatible, it's better to know that sooner than later and certainly before you start merging finances. So today's episode is a fun one, but also a very important one as well. We're talking about all things money and relationships, how to have the conversation, how to bring it up, what needs to be discussed, so much more. Um, you guys are going to really like this one. Chelsea is incredible. I'm talking to the founder of The Financial Diet, Chelsea Fagan. Chelsea is going to give us the rundown on everything love and money and her personal experiences with it. This is such an important episode that we all need. These tools are important to have with our partners. You are going to love it. Send it to a friend right now. Share this episode and then you can talk about it together. Heck, send it to your partner or send it to potential bae. And based on how they react, you know if you're going on the next date or not. Okay, without further ado. Chelsea is here. Chelsea Fagan is a writer, home cook, and the founder and CEO of The Financial Diet based in Manhattan. You started The Financial Diet uh, in late 2014. It was just a personal blog at that point. And at this point, it's really expanded to something so impressive. I mean, it's a cross-platform media company. It's a premier digital destination for young women, especially looking to talk about money. And I personally am so passionate about this because I didn't grow up being taught financial literacy. And so I had to really stumble through it in my early and mid-20s. And I just... It doesn't have to be that hard, um, but it is when you don't have the education or the resources. So I love the mission behind what you're doing. I love what you've accomplished. I'm curious to know how you got into it. When you started that personal blog, was it really just, I don't know what I'm doing and I'm going to document the process? Pretty much. I'm definitely someone who thrives with external accountability. So having the visibility, because I did already have... Um, you know, a decently sized audience, not huge, but enough people to kind of keep me accountable. Um, so yeah, it was definitely for that purpose. Okay. So that's what started it. And here you are now. Um, talk to me a little bit about the evolution of the brand. At mm -hmm. what point did you realize, okay, I've got something here and I want to make more with it? Yeah. So essentially I, um, on like day three of ha having published, uh, just again, the personal Tumblr, um, I, uh, was approached by my co-founder, Lauren Verhaeg, who was working at an ad agency in New Jersey at the time and was looking for projects to fill out her portfolio that she was kind of taking on for free. She reached out, she asked if she could redesign the blog as part of that portfolio. Um, I said, yes. Um, and then, you know, very quickly, you know, the audience for the project grew. We were approached um, just around Christmas of that first year in 2014. We had started in, I started the blog in August of 2014. And at Christmas, we were approached by John and Hank Green, who are really, really established internet creators. They have a very large educational production company. Um, and they have several um, foundations that give grants to digital creators who are doing things uh, in the educational space generally that they kind of want to see more of. Um, so they reached out to us to give us a grant. And, um, you know, it wasn't much, it was $5,000. But we kind of took that as a serious enough sign as well as their interest in us to um, leave our jobs and pursue TFD full time. Um, and it just kind of grew from there. And now we're uh, 11 staff. Um, 
tons of contractors, all women, based out of our office here in Manhattan. That's awesome. And TFD, the financial diet.com. When people go to the website now, if someone's listening and hearing about the platform for the first time, what can they expect? So we actually don't publish on our website anymore. Our website is just a hub where you can go to other places. All of our kind of um, article-based content is in our newsletter. We just do newsletters. Um, But, you know, in terms of what people can expect, you know, we try to be pretty diversified across, you know, video, podcast, articles. Um, Our biggest, the biggest part of what we do now is events, both in person and digital. So that's everything from a one evening workshop on credit cards all the way to full day conferences or four week kind of um, deep dive classes on things like investing or budgeting. Um, So, you know, pretty full service as far as media companies go. And what I'm most looking forward to talking with you about today is this intersection of money and relationships. Those are two things that we talk about a lot on Hot Happy Mess. I enjoy conversations about each of them. So we thought it was high time to just sort of combine the two and explore how they intersect, you know, whether it's romantic relationships, platonic or familial relationships. Money makes people weird. It makes things awkward. And sometimes um, what you don't know can very much hurt you. I've, I've experienced that. And I think it's time that we just sort of remove the stigma around some uncomfortable conversations when it comes to money, um, particularly when it takes more than one person to um, handle it correctly, save and invest. And there's a bit of a collaboration there. Uh, so talk to me a little bit about uh, your perspective when it comes to, let's just kick it off with romantic relationship, right? At what point do you recommend that someone start talking about money with a potential or prospective partner? Or do you wait until you're in the relationship to quote unquote, go there? I would definitely say prior to being in a relationship, I think once you're, you know, you've been on a few dates, um, you're thinking this is someone you might want to be seeing exclusively. Um, you know, I think there are a lot of entry points to a conversation about money, but I, I think What is kind of most important is that anyone who is extremely reticent or turned off or um, aggressive about conversations around money, very uncomfortable, very cagey, all that kind of stuff, that's a red flag in and of itself and not just about money. Um, So that's really something that you want to establish super early on, especially as a woman, because typically in heterosexual relationships, women are going to have, they're going to earn less. They're going to have less control over long-term financial decision making and planning. They're going to, um, you know, have a, uh, a pretty unfair power dynamic. If for example, the two of you have children, um, you know, as far as who's expected to take on the primary caregiver role, expected to kind of sacrifice in terms of career, you know, so women really can't afford in particular not to have these conversations. And I think there's often a fear that like, oh, is this going to seem too fast? Or is this going to seem like I'm not fun or any of those things? But again, anyone who is worth dating long term, or maybe even marrying is going to be someone who's going to be rational and adult and empathetic about talking about money, even relatively early on. What do you recommend for scripts when it comes to that? I'm big on asking about, you know, um, potential or ideal prompts to start those conversations, because I agree that they're important to have, but it's one thing in theory. It's another thing when you're across from the dinner table with, you know, some guy you're on date number three with, um, and you actually have to go there. So how do you recommend that we sort of broach the subject delicately, but firmly? You know, I mean, part of the reason I say that this is probably something that should happen only in the context of you both kind of feeling like, and I mean, you never know, right? Like you have to somewhat infer from the other person, but if it's seeming like you're both moving towards exclusivity, um, you know, I think that opens a nice framing for the conversation, which is that, you know, hey, I'm really, um, I'm really loving the time I'm spending with you. I'm really feeling, you know, pretty strongly about you and, you know, I think you're someone that I could really care about. And I think, you know, anyone that I feel like I could really care about, I want to make sure that we're on the same page when it comes to, you know, compatibility and the bigger life stuff and things like that. So, you know, I'd love to hear kind of your philosophy on money, you know, where you land in terms of, you know, your long-term goals, you know, what's important to you, how do you like to spend? I think asking questions that are kind of 
that are very open-ended, that are very much allowing the other person to share about themselves, you know, their history, their priorities, and really framing it in the context of, you know, what is the future going to look like? What do you want it to look like? You know, because ultimately, you know, any of these decisions we talk about, where you want to live, whether you want kids, whether you want to get married, if you want a big wedding, if, you know, you want to live, um, if you want to move around a lot, if you want to buy a, all of this stuff, these are all financial questions. And I think we have a tendency to feel like m- talking about money kind of dirties anything romantic mm-hmm. or takes yeah. away from it. And I think it's quite the opposite. I think it's much more, I want to make sure that these things that we want to do are not just shared goals, but they're also things that we're actively working toward in a constructive way rather than just sort of hoping that they happen. Yeah. Yeah. Really good point. And, you know, when I start thinking about relationship and having those conversations that are so important, you know, relationship in general, even when we're talking about love and affection and things like that, it's always like, start with yourself, right? Self-love, self-acceptance, self, self, self. And the same can be said for money because I've certainly been in, you know, relationships where it's off. The, The perspective on money, our limiting beliefs around money, our ideas about what money is for or not for. And I say that to say, Uh, doing the work, quote unquote, financially for oneself is also really important, in my opinion, before you decide to partner up so you can figure out who aligns most with sort of your financial mission. Totally agree. I'm curious to know what that was like for you as you evolved as an individual, as you sort of figured out uh, how you felt about money and what you wanted it to do for you. What was that evolution like? And when did you get to a point where you felt like you were even at a place to partner up financially? Well, I met my husband when I was 22. So, oh wow, okay. We were not having this kind of adult <laughs> conversation. Let me tell you, like you're like we were in it. We're we're doing it. No, yeah, I was. I mean, yeah, an idiot when I met him, uh, <laughs> and we really grew together. And we, I mean, definitely, I think there's been, you know, uh, an evolution on both sides for for the better. He was always much more stoic and serious about money than I was. Um, but it just wasn't even a concern at that time. And I had none of it. So I was, you know, I was very much living, um, a very reckless life and I didn't start TFD until we had been together for several years already. Um, so that I can't say that I, I mean, it's very much a do as I say, not as I did kind of a thing, but if I could go back, I would definitely do it, um, the right way. And I think that would have spared us some, uh, tough moments or disagreements or, what have you. But, you know, in terms of thinking about how that's evolved, as far as what the goals are, as far as limiting beliefs, all of those things, I think one of the most clarifying things when it comes to money, because ultimately money is just a tool, right? Like we should never look at money as the actual goal in and of itself. Like there are people who are just really motivated by earning more, by seeing a bigger number in their net worth, by, you know, being able to afford more consumer items for the sake of having them and for the sake of status. And I mean, I don't want to generalize, but I think for most people, that's a pretty unhealthy way to be. And I don't think it's particularly fulfilling. And I don't think it's a holistic way to live. But if you're sort of, I think, living rightly with money, it means deciding on the life that you want, the community that you want, the things that you want to accomplish in life, the things that you want to be able to give, and then f- figuring out how money is sort of the, you know, the building blocks of that. You know, how are you, you how are you leveraging money to get there? And so, you know, for my husband and I, we're both, we don't want children. Um, we know that we're our biggest priority in life for both of us is freedom and flexibility. You know, that means travel, that means professional flexibility. Like my husband is um, not a US citizen, and he's been going through some immigration drama the past couple of years. So he hasn't worked in um, a while now, like over six months. And that's something that he can afford to do that we can afford to do. Um, And he is not I mean, he's going to get his authorization soon, but he's not in a rush to immediately go back, he's going to take his time and find the right position. And, you know, there's a lot of contributing factors to that financially. Obviously, not having children is probably the biggest one, but it's also, you know, living below your means. It's buying less house than you can afford because your priority is not like I know many people who their priority is they want, you know, a big, beautiful house with a big yard and maybe a pool and they want to have, you know, a big family and do all of these things that are 
amazing, but they also they also cost a lot and they also preclude a lot of other life paths. So I really think ultimately money management is the second part of it. The bigger part of it is what is your ultimate priority in life? And I don't think it can always be distilled down to a word or two, but I think the more you can get to something that's like freedom, uh, you know, experiences, uh, family, um, stability, whatever these words are, I think it's really important to pick that and then work backwards from it. And I will say Mm -hmm. as a last note on that, like, yes, I'm much better at handling money on just like a budget level, but that's easy. Like there's not that much to learn. And when you do like you're good, what's been clarifying over the years is really realizing, um, what I want my money to do for me. Mm-hmm. Really great advice. And you brought up budgeting and how that's really just sort of the tip of the iceberg. It's why am I budgeting? What do I want to save and invest this money for? Um, what are some of the resources that you used earlier on? Obviously, now you have TFD and others therefore have it. Um, but when you were first getting into this journey to financial literacy, what helped you? What would you recommend? What mistakes did you make in mm-hmm. the beginning of that journey um, that we can avoid <laughs> by learning from your lessons? <laughs> You know, I would say the number one thing was that I downloaded Mint early on, um, which is just a budgeting tool that I found really uh-huh. easy to use and just helps, you know, get all your money in one place and really kind of visualize your money and um, track your purchases and your habits and all of those things. I think that was the first step. Um, you know, as far as resources, you know, I definitely started following other women in the personal finance community who were already out there, you know, several of whom have become good personal friends of mine at this point, but women like Erin Lowry of of Broke Millennial, Amanda Holden, um, who's an investment expert and former trader who we work with both of them a lot as well. Um, You know, but I think, again, as far as mistakes, I think the number one thing that I would just remind people that I wasn't a mistake so much as what I um, misunderstood was that it's really not, it's not complicated. There's not really math involved. You don't, if, you know, good money management, you're not really doing much. In fact, in a lot of cases, the best, the most effective part of money management is not touching it, not looking at it, not messing around Mm -hmm. with it, not, you know, once your money's in the market, close your eyes to whatever's going on because you're in it for the long haul, you know, or setting up your automatic, especially right now. Oh my God, please. I don't, couldn't tell you what's happening because I'm not looking at it, but, um, you know, or setting up automatic debits and, you know, doing all of those things that help prevent, um, human error. So I definitely overthought it at first. Okay. Okay. Um, that is actually really comforting to hear, right? So I've been on this journey for quite some time now, but I did get to a point where it was just like, set it and forget it. And it has saved me so much mental and emotional bandwidth because I first remembered, you know, two years ago, almost three years ago now, the start of the pandemic. And I mean, the market was just doing some crazy things. And I watched two people close to my life specifically just ride the waves emotionally every morning, like with the stock market, they woke up and depending on what happened on any given day, their mood, their, their day, their experience, um, changed. And it was a crazy time. And now retroactively, obviously you look back hindsight's 2020 and they come out on the other side of that and everything is generally fine. But being tethered to the way your money is moving in the day to day really isn't the best idea for one's mental health, I feel. And it sounds like you agree. Absolutely not. Yeah, that's I mean, I think that's like also just like a general life lesson, like Mm -hmm. anything that's out of your control, like learn what you can do, learn where you have energy to direct where you can make an impact. But like, I mean, I I feel the same way about a lot of issues in the world. Like don't drive yourself crazy over focusing on things that you have no control over. Yeah, absolutely. Um, When we talk about families and those dynamics growing up, we didn't really talk about money too much, at least not about, you know, how to save it, invest it. Um, I grew up hearing cash under the mattress, cash under the mattress, which is basically the worst place to put your cash. Um, it was only in my twenties that I even wrapped my mind around inflation. And what's so wild to me is growing up in, in school, you know, and I went to probably arguably the best private school in Northwest Ohio. We were not taught 
financial literacy. I mean, history, geography, biology, all of the things that no one's asked me about since I graduate. I've got you covered, but we didn't really talk about that stuff. And so because I didn't have it in my household growing up necessarily, or my immediate family, I was really flying blind once I got into the real world. I'm curious to know, what was that like for you, that sort of familial dynamic? Were there conversations around money? Were there not? Do you feel like that set you up for failure or success uh, based on what happened? You mentioned that you grew up hearing a lot about keeping cash under the mattress. Do you mind if I ask where your uh, uh, any either of your parents immigrants? Um, no, but they're from the deep south, and so my mom's a military brat, and my my father is from the deep south, and you know grew up sort of. I don't want to speak for them specifically, but I will say in my family, like even the extended family, there was sort of a a lack of trust around the banks and and government and financial institutions um, and people in positions of power having your money, right? So I can can empathize even with that. I I can understand where it comes from, but it doesn't mean that it was the right advice for them to have been given or giving. That's I'm curious to know why you asked. Well, because that's a really, really common thing with, uh, mm-hmm. especially, you know, immigrant, uh, communities that are, um, obviously English is a second language. They typically, you know, we're talking about often communities that are fairly underbanked. Um, I mean, even my husband, who's an immigrant from, uh, you know, a visa free travel country in the EU, um, it was really difficult for him to get properly banked in a lot of different ways and to get set up in all of our systems and to even understand the tax code and to do things like that. Um, you know, it, I'm, it's kind of surprising to have, you know, that distrust paired with someone who's in the military, but I'm sure that's a deep dive for um, another day. <laughs> because obviously, right? <laughs> totally. But it is, I mean, you really, over the years, we've really pulled out a lot of these threads and see a lot of these common threads. And, you know, for me, I grew up quite low income. I'm pretty transparent about that. My family is more middle-class now, but when I was young, you know, government subsidies, you know, not, we were, we were never homeless. We were never, we didn't ever not have enough food. So I do want to be careful about not, you know, overstating, but money was definitely a super precarious thing. My family didn't necessarily have that same, quite that same level of mistrust, although the their immigrant parents, the ones that were did. So, you know, that Mm -hmm. I think was ambient in the, in the environment, but I think being lower income is another area where you'll see a lot of that, um, you know, very, very, uh, reticent to use credit, uh, or to take on debt, um, really, really wary of investing in the stock market. You know, Mm -hmm. a lot of the, um, you know, wealth building, vehicles and a lot of these systems like credit, like investing, you know, and whatnot, like those are really, really scary to a lot of communities and definitely was scary to, you know, my family growing up and still to this day, you know, not to put their business out there, but I still have to get on them about like, you know, you gotta, gotta set up, you gotta have that retirement account built out, you know? Um, so, you know, from my perspective, I, you know, I've, I've done a lot of content about, you know, sort of the emotional and mental stuff that comes with growing up in that environment. And, you know, for a lot of people like you, as an example, like even with a lot of access in other ways, like going to this elite school, you're still not given the tools, right. To understand this stuff. So it's not even necessarily, it's not just an immigrant thing. It's not just a low income thing. You know, it's, especially with women, it is a really, really systemic issue. Um, And, you know, we see a ton of women every day who like, literally their brother would be taught a lot of financial management stuff, and they would not. Um, You know, so I, I definitely, I hear a lot from our community from people who have to support family members or who are very frustrated with their parents and their elders and the way that they handle money or their attitudes around money. Um, and again, this is only compounded when you have, like, for example, um, you know, huge parts of the country that uh, either don't speak or speak very little English. So, you know, even interfacing with these systems is really difficult. But I think. My overall advice to people 
who are trying to navigate the family stuff is that ultimately it is not a child's responsibility to manage their parents' finances. And it does not help anyone to perpetuate a cycle of generational poverty or generational dependence. Like if you're sabotaging your own financial health in order to help support your parents, which we see a ton of, that helps no one, right? Like all you're potentially doing is just further off putting that onto your own kids one day who are going to have to help you because you couldn't build out your own retirement. Um, And similarly, you know, there's only so much a lot of people can do to overcome or correct for um, or try to sort of work on as an adult child, the dynamics that they were raised with. I think it's important to just focus on whether you're having your own children or you're, you know, you have other children in your community, nieces, nephews, friends, children, maybe you work with children, whatever it might be, like just ensuring that they're going to have better tools than you did is I think the most important part because Ultimately, I I just I think the most common themes that we hear in these relationships are resentment, guilt, um, obligation, um, you know, anxiety, all of these things. And this is really a mental health issue. And in many cases should be talked about with like a counselor or something. Um, But it's the last thing. Yeah, just to reiterate is like, do not sabotage your own financial health to help your parents financially. The final season of Power Book 2 Ghost is here, and no one's future is safe. After surviving a hit on her life, Monet, played brilliantly by Mary J. Blige, has to reckon with what led her to almost lose everything and to atone for the life she has forced her children to live. And on the other side of the coin, Davis, portrayed by the multi-talented Method Man, is suspended and on the verge of losing his law license. Desperate to survive, he fully embraces the criminal underbelly of his enterprise and finds himself working for both sides. Loyal to whichever one benefits him most. And then, of course, there's Tariq, who finds himself at rock bottom and facing threats from every angle. With his future in the game in serious doubt and his family's safety on the line, will he lean into the St. Patrick name and do whatever has to be done to get back on top? Like father, like son. Power Book 2, Ghost, the final season. Watch now, only on Stars and the Stars app. Listen up. I've got a quick message for any black entrepreneurs who are planning on opening a store or who want to grow their business. If this describes you... Let me share some info about the 1 Million Black Businesses Initiative. The 1 Million Black Businesses Initiative is an award-winning program created by Shopify and Operation Hope. They're on a mission to start, grow, and scale 1 million black businesses by 2030, driving wealth creation for the black community. Out of 6 million employer-owned businesses in the U.S., only 2.3% have black ownership. This program gives black entrepreneurs tools and resources to level the playing field. From free business coaching to tailored training, and extended free Shopify trial. Shopify's made a 10-year, multi-million dollar commitment to the program, and it's working. The initiative already started, supported, and engaged with over 334,000 black businesses, helping them operate businesses that sell anything from skateboards to coffee beans to apparel. Business owners love this program. Simone Harvin, founder of SC Creative Group, says, The 1 million black businesses experience for me was unlike any other program I've been a part of, primarily because it was for us and it was by us. Here at Drink Champs, we are always interacting with our listeners, many being black entrepreneurs. Shopify is one of those platforms that empowers and emboldens entrepreneurship. So chart your own path for business success with the 1 Million Black Businesses Initiative and Shopify. Bring your business to Shopify with an exclusive offer at shopify.com slash B-E-N, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash B-E-N. The following is a high five moment from highfivecasino.com. I won! Yahoo! Private, put down your phone. This is the army. Sarge, High Five Casino is a social casino. It's on your phone. goes wherever you go. I win free spins, cash, prizes, free daily rewards, over 1,200 games. I won again. Platoon, present cell phone. High Five. High Five. Casino. Casino. Win at HighFiveCasino.com. High Five Casino is a social casino. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited. Play responsibly. Conditions apply. See website for details. High Five Casino. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped. The scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, 
and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped. Now streaming only on Hulu. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of. A degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Do you have any steadfast rules when it comes to loaning money to a friend or a family member? You know, some people say just don't let anyone borrow anything that you are not okay with never seeing again so that you can just make peace with that and then hope you get the money back. Are you a hard and fast don't do it person or what's your perspective on that? I totally agree with what that point that never do it if you can't afford to treat it as a gift. And I would actually go Mm -hmm. one step further, especially if you're talking about lending to someone that you're close with is I would give them the money if you're going to do it and say, listen, um, if you want to pay this back, you pay this back when you can, as you can. Um, Don't give them a schedule. Don't give them payment terms. Mm -hmm. Let them do it on their own terms. Because I do think that where it gets very fraught is when people are not either willing or able to do what they agreed to. And if you're only doing it with things that you can afford to treat as a gift, you want to give yourself and that other person, I think the luxury of not having um, potential areas of messing up or conflict or intimidation or, you know, on their end resentment or anxiety of like, I can't believe, you know, I have to pay my cousin or my friend or my sister or whoever back, you know, and, and feeling that stress of suddenly having to view this person who is a close personal relationship now as like a creditor, you know? Um, so I do think in general, like, you know, we, I, I recently did a video about this, about kind of, I, I think that we generationally mentioned earlier how we talk quite a lot about the self when we talk about, um, you know, relationships, mental health, mental health, et cetera. And I really agree with that. And I think it can be good, but I think it can also be quite dangerous because I do think that it can sometimes make us quite frankly, stingy with others. It can make us mm. a little too self-focused. It can make us um, live less generously, less empathetically, less community oriented. Um, and so I do think that if, you know, if someone is coming to you for money that you love, it's probably one of two situations, right? Either they want to make a big life move that they're not ready to make yet financially on their own, like buying a home or moving or whatever it might be. And then the other one might be that they're in real financial distress, And in both cases, if you're wanting to help this person, it should be out of love and empathy. um, And because you genuinely want to help that situation, not because you're looking to kind of maximize your returns. And someone might say, well, you know, what if they want me to invest in a business, you know, that I'm not necessarily so sure about, or I want to make sure I'm getting my money back, whatever. We hear that a lot. Don't invest in that business. Don't invest in anything that you don't genuinely feel really good about. Okay, really, really great advice. And I I appreciate you you encouraging folks to really consider more heavily the emotional aspect and the relational aspect of giving money to, to make sure your heart's in the right place. It certainly helps with managing the resentment, right? If you gave purely or genuinely, um, it's much harder, or at least there's there's a higher threshold before (laughs) you sort of get to your wit's end or become a little bit resentful about how you may or may not get that money back or what does or doesn't happen with that quote unquote investment. 
Um, I would love if you could briefly um, break down financial abuse. I just want to mm-hmm. talk about it for just a few here. What is it exactly? Because I'll be honest, that's a, a term that's newer to me, and I'm not entirely sure what all would fall under that umbrella. So what is financial abuse? So I should clarify here that I'm, I'm not a therapist, although we've spoken to therapists about mm-hmm. that. And they'll say, mm-hmm. you know, financial abuse isn't a term, you know, in the in the literature. Mm-hmm. It's not something that has like a hard and fast definition. But okay. I would say in general, it's anything under the umbrella of using uh, finances as a form of coercion, control, um, shame, um, you know, or, or really any kind of uh, manipulative or harmful uh, dynamic um, in a couple. Generally speaking, there are very few, from what I've read, from what we've learned at TFD, there are very few examples of domestic abuse or even, I mean, sometimes there are um, abusers within families, parents abuse children, children can abuse parents, you know, all of these, it's not limited to domestic relationships, romantic relationships, but to speak broadly about them, there are very few examples of abusive relationships where finances are not a part of it. Um, mm-hmm. And generally, if a person is going to be abusing you financially, they're probably also going to be emotionally abusive or manipulative or, you know, engaging in gaslighting or, or any of these things. So, um, you know, it's really m- when money is used as a tool um, to negative ends. And this happens a lot more than we think, I, I believe, in heterosexual relationships. And um, sort of piggybacking on that idea. No, I won't even say that because they're two very different things. Um, transitioning to the concept of financial infidelity. Uh, when I read the definition, I could see how people easily, you know, sort of fall into that trap. Um, sometimes it's tempting. I'll be honest. Sometimes I've been in moments where I'm like, oh, I'm just, I just want to avoid this conversation. So I just, I'm going to take this money over here and not talk about what I'm about to do with it because it's going to be a thing. Um, but <laughs> could you break down for our audience what exactly financial infidelity is? Um, and then also, what are your thoughts on it? Do you think I mean, obviously, if everyone, if everyone's on the same page, to each his own. So are you one of those who subscribes to a joint account and then individual accounts is something you recommend for folks? Is it sort of to each his own, whatever floats your boat? Um, what is financial infidelity and what can we do to avoid it in our relationships? I mean, similar to, you know, romantic or sexual infidelity, it's, you know, any financial activity that you're engaging in that you're either in that you're hiding from your partner, essentially, that you're being deceptive about. You could be doing it out of omission. You could be doing it actively and lying. Um, There's a whole spectrum. Um, In general, my my hard and fast rule, especially again in heterosexual relationships where these power dynamics are so present, is no matter how combined most of your finances are, there always need to be separate accounts, especially for the woman. I recommend that everyone have at least their own emergency fund as well as their own kind of fun account that, you know, it doesn't have to be much, maybe just like a hundred or so bucks, you know, here and there to spend on things that you don't want to have to have a conversation about that. You don't want to have to like be on board with, you know, because there are plenty of things that, you know, I buy that my husband is like, that's a waste of money and vice versa. And I, and I don't think it serves either of us to have to feel like each party has to rubber stamp every financial decision. There should be, I think, the ability to, um, to be flexible with your own money and to, to do what is appealing to you without having to make it a big deal. But I think, you know, financial infidelity happens quite a lot and often it will happen, um, a very common dynamic that we'll see is women hiding purchases from their spouse. Um, th- that, and again, in heterosexual relationships. And, you know, I that's bad. Don't do that. But I also, I understand why that happens in a lot of relationships, because especially when women have children and their career prospects are diminished, maybe they're not working at all. Maybe they're working part-time, they're earning less, they're um, having less and less control over their money in society. It's not shocking that that's going to sometimes channel itself into exerting control and decision-making and and agency in other less ideal areas. Tell the truth, Chelsea. (laughs) Have you ever (laughs) Uh 
snuck just a little purchase, just a little something, something. And later your husband was like, what the actual heck? Like we talked about this or we didn't. And he's just like, wait, what is this? Like some massive Amazon thing just lands at the door. And now there's a combo to be had. Oh, for sure. I, I mean, I do it like, so I see a cosmetic dermatologist. I've had skin issues my whole uh-huh. life. And also I'm not 33. So, you know, okay. a little Botox. Okay. Never, you know, what, We're what like, have you. Hey, well, 34. <laughs> You'll you know, get, get, get to that age. <laughs> Just got here. Uh, Happy to be here. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I'm not, I'm not far off. I'm in January. But uh, <laughs> suffice to say, like, there have been times where, you know, he's like, what could, what kind of a laser could possibly cost, you know, $1,500? And I'm like, listen, this is just like, this is something that is going to be a part of my life probably till I die like some tasteful, you know, cosmetic procedures every now and again. Um, right. That's a decision that I've made between myself and me. And, you know, <laughs> I don't, I, the, I, I wasn't hiding necessarily, but like I wasn't seeking approval on that before I did it because mm-hmm. I knew it was just going to be an argument of like, you look fine. You don't need to go spend, you know, whatever. But I think especially right. for women, like I don't know a single again, heterosexual woman really who doesn't have some level of like, how does hair cost $400 or, you know what I'm saying? Like that kind of a thing. They're just going to have to get over it is my take. A hundred percent. I love you saying, um, it was a decision I made between myself and me. I think I'll be stealing that to you for the rest of this year slash my life. So thank you. So that was a decision between myself and me. We sat down and had a really great chat about it. We Um, did. I love it. I love it. You uh, have been quoted as saying very few people have a totally healthy, totally holistic, totally communicative and totally unburdened relationship with money themselves, let alone when they come into long term financial cohabitation with another person, um, which I think is really insightful and so spot on. I'm curious to know what are maybe one or two really emotionally charged questions that people seem to avoid or may not even realize that they should be having, but aren't uh, when it comes to money and their partner? Hmm. I mean, I think to go back to our earlier conversation, it's not even so much about the money aspect. Cause like, there's the usual stuff of like, I'm a saver, he's a spender, vice versa. Like one's avoidant, one is micromanaging, blah, 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 blah. And those are, you know, those are real logistical issues that can be overcome, but definitely need to be addressed. But those are really just questions of, um, logistics of administration of, you know, how individual budget decisions are made on a day-to-day level. Um, I think what is really difficult for people is the philosophical questions about Mm -hmm. what is important to us in life financially. And again, we tend to think of things as not being financial, but this is America. Almost everything is a financial decision. Like very few things are not right. And so like even something, you know, obviously the kids, the wedding, the this, that, and the other prenups for me are a non-negotiable. But like when it comes to things like, okay, well, do you want to be in your job forever? Like, do you maybe want to change careers? Do you want to go back to school? Do you feel comfortable if we live on one person's income for a while? Like all of these kind of questions, I think people really don't think to ask until they're presented with the issue and then it becomes quite stressful. Um, And then I think on top of that, especially when it comes to a lot of these life moves, buying a home, having a kid, having a big wedding, you know, all of these sort of, I think, very heteronormative um, milestones, like we have to keep in mind that like, first of all, a lot of them came from a very different economy where it was a lot more affordable for people, even things like going to college, sending your kids to college, all of these things. I think people have a tendency now to just treat as a given and then get mad at themselves if they don't have it or if they're not able to afford it. And the truth is that a lot of people who have these things that we consider the adult milestones or aspirational, like they're heavily in debt. You know, they're putting this on credit cards. They're not able to maintain this lifestyle. And the truth is that financially, unless you are a crazy high earner, you can't have it all. You can't do it all. It's you have to make choices. And I do think that there's not enough of a conversation of like, for example, if you're going to buy a home, for example, 
I don't think enough people, I think so many people treat it as like, well, that's what you do when you're an adult, which first of all, not at all necessarily. And there are a lot of housing markets right now that I think you would be a fool to try and buy into because of the prices and whatnot. But um, like there is not enough of a discussion of like, okay, but then what is that costing us on the other side? What does that mean? Mm -hmm. Because like, for example, with a home, if you're buying a home and you're even remotely savvy about it, you need to plan to be in that home for probably close to 10 years if, mm-hmm. you know, if you have to. If you right. are going to maybe want to move, change careers, earn less money, do any of these things, you better not want to do that for 10 years because you could be selling into a bad market. And I don't think, and so a lot of people, I think, just look at the shiny object and they don't think enough about what is it, what are we giving up on the other side and are we okay with that? Right. You mentioned um, prenups towards the start of of that answer. And very briefly, it felt like you were an advocate for that. Like you, I think you said something to the effect of like, yes. (laughs) So one of my questions was, how do you feel about prenups, postnups? Should everyone be getting them? Should you only be getting them under certain circumstances? And how do you start that conversation? That's the conversation that for me is like... It's awkward. I, I don't even, I don't know where, where to begin. I think it's important, but I have no idea where to begin. <laughs> Prenups, I think are a must for everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, postnups I've heard from a lot of attorneys are not, you can get them, but I've heard from a lot of attorneys, they don't really hold up in court. So yeah, I don't get the point of them either. I'm like, if you tied the knot and you didn't sign anything and then you're like, actually just kidding, let's backpedal on that complete lack of, you know, right. Right, exactly. And and we've actually um, also in, you know, our interviews and things heard from uh, therapists, experts uh, in psychology that postnups are actually often a tool of financial abusers. And, you know, Mm. um, because they can, I mean, you're really, in many cases, coercing a person into, like you said, kind of giving up the initial agreement that was made when you got married. Um, and you know, as, as lawyers have explained it to us, you know, the postnup often fails because when you're doing a prenup, there is a specific agreement being made, um, in exchange for a marriage, you know, as opposed to a postnup, which is just like, I don't know, like, what's the, what are we agreeing to here? Exactly. We're just like, actually, never mind. I no longer want to have the same, uh, marriage laws. Um, so right. definitely prenup, not postnup is the first. And second, I mean, if, if it's something that feels awkward to you, I think that's all the more reason, not you personally, but in general, like it's all the more reason to talk about these things really early. Like I would say in, in the earlier stages of dating, when you're having these open philosophical conversations about money, you know, I think it's totally cool and chic, honestly, to be like, mm-hmm. you know, for me, having a prenup is really important because I want to make sure that if you know, God forbid we ended up not together, that everyone is really treated fairly and that we're dividing our assets and we're making these calls based on a moment in time where we loved each other the most, where we were really happy with each other, you know, because when you're writing a prenup, you're about to get married. You probably are the most in love, you know, at least infatuated. You're probably more generous than you'll ever be in your life because you just love this person so much. And you never think you're going to get divorced. So, you know, I would definitely kind of approach it that way. Okay. Really great advice. Uh, As we wrap things up here, uh, what are some free resources that you suggest for women who are seeking to build their financial independence um, and and really grow when it comes to showing up for themselves financially? Mm. Definitely. Nerd, uh, nerd wallet has a lot of really good calculators when it comes to calculating things yeah. like for your investment, retirement, you know, net worth, all that stuff. Um, Mint is a really great app that's free for budgeting. I really like it a lot. Um, I would say definitely, uh, it sounds corny, but the library, I mean, basically every good financial book ever is offered through the library. And like, you can now, if you have like a Kindle or even just on your iPhone, you can get like the Libby app, which allows you to get library books downloaded immediately oh for free. Yeah. Gee, like, never, yeah, you never have to read for a book again. Never. Yeah. Yeah. There's no reason. Okay. That's really good to know. Yeah. And you know, there's some really great financial podcasts out there. You know, I listen to basically every morning I do the, um, the financial times news brief. Uh, It's a really good 
you know, get the top line information every morning about what's going on in the world. And then I'm like, okay, now I can just not think about that for the rest of the day. Um, And your podcast, right? You have financial confessions. Yes. Um, Our podcast though, that podcast is definitely like, it's a lot more just like entertainment in the sense that we're talking about, you know, life through a financial lens. Um, So each episode is very different and it's kind of lifestyle based. So it's not as much about the nitty gritty, but definitely level two, I would say when you're looking to just kind of integrate a more holistic financial perspective into all of your life choices. Okay. Got it. And this podcast is all about best life minus the burnout with everything that you're doing, everything that you're building. Um, and particularly in the space of finance, which can get overwhelming and heavy sometimes. Um, how do you prioritize balance just personally? What does self-care look like for you? Do you have daily rituals? What do you do, uh, to battle the burnout? So I only work a four day work week, uh, at TFD, we switched to a four day work week last year. So I don't really ever have burnout. I don't work that much. I love it. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, I ride my bike every day almost. I, you know, I try to have a pretty active social life. You know, I, I hate to say it because it sounds terrible to say, but it's really the truth. I don't have kids. I mean, mm. I've worked a four day work week and I don't have kids. Like probably no yeah. one is as well rested or relaxed or self care as I am all the time. <laughs> Honestly, I am. And look, I want kids. I love kids, but the older I get and the longer I go without them, I'm like, I get it. I get why folks don't have them. I am chilling. It's me and my puppy when I'm not working and it's a great life. Very it peaceful. Is. It is a great life. It is. And I do feel like that's another thing that not not enough people really think about is, you know, if you are someone, we have several working mothers on the team and they love it. It's what they wanted. It's not a choice they would ever regret, but they both say over and over again, like, this is only something you should do if you absolutely want it because it is a S ton of work. It's a lot. It is. Um, Well, I love that. Also, you're very brave for riding your bicycle through Manhattan. To me, that sounds like stress on a stick, but (laughs) it's very impressive. I'm I'm getting braver. I'm getting braver. (laughs) Okay. If people want to keep up with you, where, where can we find you? Um, so I probably would say on Twitter, mostly, uh, Chelsea underscore Fagan, um, is where I tweet, but follow the financial diet everywhere. We do a lot of cool stuff. Okay. Awesome. Chelsea, this was great. Thank you so much for your wisdom, your expertise. Uh, our audience is going to love it. So I appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much, Chelsea, for joining me on the podcast this week. That was a great conversation. So many gems, so many takeaways. Let's get this money, y'all. Let's be financially smart and savvy and awesome if you can do it with a partner, okay? Be sure to check out hothappymess.com and the episode show notes if you want resources from Chelsea or The Financial Diet. And if you're loving what you're hearing, don't be shy. The love is what keeps Team Hot Happy Mess going. So if you can leave us a five-star rating and maybe a couple of quick sentences about why you love the podcast or what you're enjoying right now, it moves mountains in my heart, okay? You can follow me on Instagram at Zuri Hall and at Hot Happy Mess. Hit me up in the DMs. I love seeing your messages. I respond as often as I can. And you could very well end up on the podcast if you're into that. I will talk to you next week. Have a good one. Bye. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX is clipped. Now streaming only on Hulu. High Five Casino. High Five Casino is a social casino with real prizes and big Vegas hits at highfivecasino.com. The hottest games right from Vegas and all winnings go straight to your bank account. Hundreds of exclusive games, free daily rewards, and come back to get free coins every four hours. Only at highfivecasino.com. High Five Casino is a social casino. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited. Play responsibly. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details at high5casino.com. High Five Casino. Your credit card should match your lifestyle. At Kemba Financial Credit Union, choose a card with benefits that work for you. For a limited time, 
time, all cards have 2% cash back on purchases and 0% interest on balance transfers for a year. Apply at Kemba.org. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Even though Tariq St. Patrick was betrayed and almost taken out last season, he's not totally on his own in the final season of Power Book 2, Ghost. For better or for worse, his partner in the drug game, Braden Weston, is his ride or die, and it's them against the world. But when Braden goes all in on this life, Tariq has to wonder, is there really room for both of them at the top? Power Book 2, Ghost, the final season. Watch now, only on Stars and the Stars app. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store.